What an awesome time of the year as we think of Christmas and all that it truly means. Peace on earth. Well, there's not going to be peace until we know Jesus Christ personally as our Savior, but we, the truth bearers, the light bearers, we that had the true message of peace, may we share it with others. I want to invite you to turn to one of the greatest, how can I say that truly, one of the greatest Old Testament prophecies, for there are many hundred great prophecies, um, but one of my favorite in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. I'd like to read Micah 5, um, this section, um, chapter, two, f- chapter 5, verses 1 to 6, and we'll open in prayer. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Just that message overturn as Israel is going to be defeated by the Assyrians. But look how it changes with the next word. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who co- is to be ruler in Israel, whose comings forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore shall he gather them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Syrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at his entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Syrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Great promise of the coming Messiah who would also be their deliverer that they thought would happen at that same time. Let's open in prayer. God, we thank you for... Um, this great prophecy tucked away in a little known book of Micah. Father, as we come to this passage tonight, God, may it not just be another thing that we do on a Sunday night at 6 o'clock, but Lord, may your word impact us deeply. Uh, May we pause and kneel at the the foot of the cross as we understand what all of this is about. God, may we meditate on your scripture, your truth, and may it impact us so that when we leave here, we have a better understanding of, of who Christ is and the cry in our hearts. And may it truly be, God, we want you to rule in our lives. We thank you in Christ's name, amen. Micah chapter five, the eternal one comes from Bethlehem. You know, when we look at Christmas around us and we see the season, we get concerned as followers of Christ, perhaps for a couple reasons. Christmas just seems to be so lost and confused, even as we watch the interviews of um, these individuals from England. Um, One of it is it seems to be so mythologized, if I can say, that they had just, the songs and the legends about Christmas have just so embellished it that even Christians are a little confused as to what is part of the Christmas story and what isn't if they don't know their gospel text so well. Because we might look at it and think, well, There were three kings. Well, the Bible doesn't say three kings, but we have a song that sings, we three kings of Orient are. You know, it's it's biblical, isn't it? Well, no, it isn't. Then we look at songs. We listen to songs and the myth of it all, and we think, well, maybe the wise men were also at the birth of Jesus, and maybe there was the drummer boy, you know, playing his drummer, because that's the Christmas song. And then let's put an angel hovering over the, the manger scene, looking down on Jesus. But none of these are biblical, at least not in that time period when he was born. 
So Christmas has been so twisted and changed and mythologized through song and legend. Then we look around us even this morning as I ran down to get poinsettias at the Dragonfly Nursery and walk into this nursery and there's Santa's everywhere. I mean, I'm surprised he wasn't standing at the door to greet me. Um, they have uh, blow-ups in the back and they have them on the counter. They have them in cards. It's, it's just, all, I mean, he's pretty big to their business. So it's been so, so um, commercialized. You know, we take away the true meaning of Christmas and we just build in. So you have all of these inflatable. You could buy an inflatable there. You can have a, this big inflatable guy on your front lawn. You know, they weren't like 15 years ago, were they? 20 years? It's just like big business lately. So you have inflatable Santas. You can have inflatable reindeer. You can have inflatable snowman. And you have so much of Christmas all all filtering down your Christmas um, or Santa. Or you'll have the songs that will have some guy... Um, keeps singing. I, I wish he would just get home, but he says, I'm going to be home for Christmas, but he keeps repeating it every year. Or you have Jack Frost keeps nipping at your nose. Guy ought to just get inside and stay warm. You know, all, all of this of Christmas just so the crass consumerism just takes away truly what Christmas is. And sadly, um, even Christians will teach their kids um, about Santa Claus. Some of them do. That, you know, always baffles me, just as a side note. Because parents, I mean, we're, we're, we struggle with self-centeredness and selfishness. Why would parents want some guy to get the credit for giving presents when they bought them for their kid? But that's another side issue. Um, you know, but we, we want to step into our passage today and truly understand um, the awesome meaning of Christmas. I read a story, a true story, a couple, several years ago. And it was this wealthy Boston family that had a christening for their baby. And they invited over all their friends to celebrate the christening of their little baby that was born in their home. And they were excited about that. And so they had all their guests there. And it was time for them to bring out the baby um, after half hour after everyone had been there to present the little one. And the mom went into the bedroom and to her horrors discovered a most fatal mistake. She had laid the baby on the on the big master bed and had thrown all of the jackets of everyone on top of the, the bed and the baby was there and the baby smothered to death. Really, that is what we do to Christmas, many Christians, when we get so occupied in the presence and, you know, we're, we ask, you know, what, our spouse, what would you like? Or we listen carefully, trying to figure out, and we get consumed in that or consumed in the decorations and the family gatherings and the laughter. That's all sweet and all, but the true meaning is tucked away right here in Micah chapter 5. And I want us to look at, be challenged, if we were to walk away with, with one thought that we can ask, because it talks about the ruler of, of Israel. Does the ruler rule in my life? And we're going to hit that application at the end. We're going to look at the text and at the end draw out application. But does he rule in my life? Because he's talking about who this ruler truly is. Let me just get the flow briefly of the book of Micah and we'll step into our verse. As we're looking at the whole flow of Micah, chapter 1, verse 1, he's talking, Micah is, gives the outline of to whom he's ministering. Clearly he's ministering to Judah. And yet it has an impact also in Israel. And his span runs at a pretty long span, about 45, 50 years from 739 to 686 range. So he's over several kings, three kings' lifetime. So he's ministering a long period. But you see in chapter 1, verse 6, he's immediately foretelling the fall of Samaria. And then he outlines the fall of Israel. He's a prophet of woe, declaring to them, because you have rejected God, this is what's going to happen to you, Israel. And he's warning Judah also what's coming. 
But the book is, has some interesting twists and turns. You'll read the one section, and immediately you have a contrast in the next section. So about one-third of the book is about defeat. This is what's going to happen. Defeat, defeat, defeat. But then you'll get the next verse, and it's talking about deliverance. And even in our passage, 5-1, five, five, defeat. But then you get the 5-2, and it turns the corner, and one day the Messiah is coming. So about a third of the book is defeat. Third of the book is going to be their glorious future. And then a third of the book predicts the judgment that will come on them because of their rejection. So let's step into our, our passage and first look at the place the Messiah would be born. And I want us to, to just enjoy this prophecy and, and think about it in light of talking to unsaved people. How we can use scripture, and we're going to talk about the stunning uh, mathematical chances of just eight prophecies being fulfilled and how we can use this passage in talking to unsaved, unsaved friends. Um, down in Arkansas recently, uh, my son-in-law works with um, an individual that's an atheist. And so we had lined up a meeting for Tuesday before we flew out to sit down with, with this young man, but um, his daughter was sick and we weren't able to have that. But some of the things that we're going to talk about here, I was hoping to bring up with him. Um, so hopefully in your defense of the faith, um, that we could be um, witnesses for Jesus Christ using this passage. Verse 1, Muster of troops, O daughter of troops, siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So here is this, this disgrace the judge assuming it's the king, maybe King Zedekiah, and this humiliation because he's been captured. Assyrian has come. Um, Assyria's security is lost. Their peace is lost. They've been, they've been or I should say Israel, because they've been conquered, conquered by Assyria. But everything changes when you step into the next verse. You have this darkness. You have this blight. You have this destruction, this horror. And then with the first word of verse 2, he changes from defeat and we see, but you, O Bethlehem. We welcome this but. And how Israel must have read this ahead of time, gaining strength and courage, frightful of verse 1. But there's hope in verse 2. But you. Here's destruction. Here's defeat. Here's um, embarrassment. But you. Something's happening in verse 2 to give a contrast to all that was set up in verse 1. So here this word really grabs our attention. And if we were just kind of coasting through, maybe soaking up the agony of verse 1 a little bit, then it changes everything when we get to verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem of Judah. It's grabbing our attention because something amazing is to happen in Bethlehem. Something very special is to happen there. Someday, I hope, we will take a trip to, to Israel. It's, we're going to send out an email. It has to be postponed one more year. So we're pushing back now into 23, uh, just because of a lot of uncertainty. But, oh, it's so special. Uh, driving to Bethlehem, Lynn and I had quite an incident. I had been the, to Bethlehem the year before, and then we were driving up to Bethlehem. A guy showed us and took us up to the top. I won't get into the fascinating incident, but just being in Bethlehem, looking out at the hills of all that happened, and being in the place where, where Christ was born is, is, is just so sweet and incredible. But here is the, the prophet talking about Bethlehem Ephrathah. He's talking of a day that would come where, where one would come from Bethlehem, the one that would fulfill the promise that Pastor referred to Genesis 3.15, that the head of, that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. One day one would come from the very 
city Bethlehem and come forth to fulfill the promise that God had given, that Satan would be crushed, that Satan would be defeated. Don't our hearts yearn for that day? And we look forward to the day of Christ's return, but if we were sitting in that time period, imagine that, that you've been defeated, and now you're reading Micah, and now it's history to you. It's no longer prophecies, but it's something that's happened. And you read verse 2. You get together in the synagogue, and you have your rabbi teaching, and you're listening to this passage. Your heart would just yearn. Even so, come, Messiah. We yearn for that truth. Come and deliver us from our enemy. So here is this one that's, that's being talked about. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah. What is the prophet Micah hitting on here. What does Bethlehem mean, by the way? You're familiar with the words, right? House of bread. So here he's talking about from Bethlehem. By the way, what would Christ say in John chapter 6? He would refer to himself as the living bread. So here from the house of bread, but it says from Bethlehem, Ephrathah. What is Ephrathah? Seems like the word means fruitful. And it According to Genesis 35, 16 and 19, and Ruth 4, 11, apparently it was an ancient name of Bethlehem. But also one commentator thought that it was maybe the, the district in Judah surrounding Bethlehem. So you have the exact city Bethlehem, then maybe talking about the, um, lying outside of it. But the writer Micah is being very specific for a reason. He's naming Bethlehem, Ephrathah, if it's that region around Bethlehem, then he says in Judah. He's being specific for a reason, which we'll get to, get to in a moment. When we look at uh, um, Bethlehem, this specific Judah, was there another Bethlehem, by the way? There were two Bethlehems in Israel. There was one, Joshua 19 talks about a Bethlehem in, according to the, or in the tribe of Zebulun. So here you have Micah outlining which Bethlehem he's talking about, the one in Judah. I'm not talking about the one in Zebulun. So he's being very specific. And he's zeroing in on this incredible promise that's, about to, that, that, that's coming about exactly which Bethlehem that we have. And it's a Bethlehem that's located in, in, this, in a tribe of Judah. Now, in this very Bethlehem, we have a lot of great things that have happened, right? We could remember Bethlehem. This is where Benjamin was born. Um, Rachel was buried in Bethlehem. That's in Genesis 35. Who gleaned in the fields of Boaz in Bethlehem? Ruth. Okay, so we have Ruth in the city of Bethlehem. And then who was also born in the city of, De in the city of <laughs> I kind of gave it away, <laughs> in Bethlehem? David. Okay, so here we have David is also from um, the city of Bethlehem. So you have a lot of amazing things happen. They conquered the Philistines, Rehoboam, and so forth. But of all of this, you would expect it then to be a pretty big city, right? I mean, a pretty big town. But it's not. Bethlehem is very tiny. In fact, it's translated in the um, King James, who are too little to be among the clans. It says among the thousands. Um, here in the ESV, it says clans. And it's showing how small it is that, that Bethlehem is so tiny. Remember when Joshua was conquering all of the cities, and then each of the tribes were giving towns that were allotted to them, and he was listing the, the major towns. Well, in all of the towns that are listed in Joshua chapter 15, the big towns, you're not going to find Bethlehem listed because Bethlehem is so tiny. 
It seems that clans could be translated thousands and it's referring to thousands in a particular town. That Bethlehem was so small it didn't even have thousands of people in it so it's not able to be listed in the big towns that are given in Joshua chapter 19. So here is the prophet Micah trying to get them to understand exactly which town this incredible person. And we're, we're about to blow off the doors by looking at the person. That's what I want us to, this Christmas season, to put on the brakes hit the brakes of the car that's racing down the highway of Christmas and all the busyness and just to pause and meditate who he is. But we're looking at where he's coming from. That God's word is so powerful, so alive, so accurate that it's showing exactly it's Bethlehem of Judah, not the bigger one in Zebulun, and that it's so tiny that it doesn't have thousands of people. So, you know, if by the way, if you were picking... A Messiah to come forth from America, where would you have a good chance if you were to say he was to be born of being right? Would you choose um, Jackson, Mississippi? Little Rock, Arkansas? I don't even know if they could crack a million people. You have a real good shot numbers-wise of being right if you chose New York City. New York City has well over 20 million people. But here is this little town. I'm not choosing Jerusalem. I'm choosing this little town, Judah, in Judah called Bethlehem. But he moves on and he says that what would happen here? The most insignificant place in Judah, Bethlehem, would come the most significant person, the Messiah. In the most insignificant place would come the preeminent person, the Messiah. And so he's zeroing in now. Now that he's got it, our attention, how tiny and how small it is, he says, let me, now let me show you what's happening in here. Let's pause for a moment. What are the chances of, how many, can we take eight prophecies? You know, some say there are 333 prophecies of Christ's first coming. Others say up to 380 people. Okay, so let's just say there are 333 prophecies, or let's just, just, let's just choose eight. We only put some 30 or so on the, on the screen here because we would have to have 10 screens up for you to see them. But let's take what are the chances of eight prophecies being fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ? Micah is one of them. Let's just, what are the chances of eight of them? Peter Stoner, Dr. Peter Stoner is a mathematician and he got 600 students and they worked out some mathematical equations. He said, what are the chances of eight prophecies occurring in the life of one person? What are the mathematical probabilities? And the 600 students spent time and they came up with the chances of being one followed by, you ready, 17 zeros. That number is 100 million billion. We're not impressed with that number. We're talking about just eight. We're not talking about 333. We're not talking about 380. We're talking about just eight. By the way, again, defense of the scriptures, how living and powerful it is. Let me put it to you this way. This is a rummy cube. If you want to have Lynn and me over, we'll play rummy cube with you. Um, but this little cube measures one inch wide and one and a half inches tall. But make believe it was, it was a square, one and a half inch square. So it's almost this size. If you were to take these squares and put them all over the earth, not the water, but over the land, 
and have one tile that has a gold star. So the whole land is covered everywhere except for one gold star, and you turn that over. And if I was to get Dennis, Dennis, you'd have to be in your 20s to be able to do this. And um, let's say, Dennis, you could walk over the whole earth, spend your whole lifetime, but when you bend over, you only have one chance to get it right. You got to, you know, to bend over, that's your chance of picking up the gold star. That's one followed by 17 zeros. And that's just eight prophecies. You get a feeling how, how incredible this word is? You know, when my talking to, to my friend years ago, Eric Larson, who now teaches at Florida National University, um, and, you know, just looking at, at the word of God and how powerful, I said, Eric, because I had not read the Quran, and he teaches um, religion classes at FIU. Um, and I said, are there prophecies in the Quran? He says, there's only one prophecy in the Quran, and it's a self-fulfilling prophecy when Muhammad says, I will return to Mecca. Jehovah Witnesses, their, their translation has Book of Mormon. Um, I had a friend, Rich Sheffield, who contacted a um, professor. Oh, boy, I have the letter in my files home. Um, I want to say it's SMU, but it might not be. It was a school down, down in that area. A professor, and I said, he wanted to know if the Book of Mormon was real because they make all of these fantastic claims and how do you how do you prove it and this professor and I, I got the letter it's really amazing how he was bordering and talking about how helpful the Mormons have been and all of their arc, all of their research and genealogy and all he says but no we we haven't yet proven anything in the book of Mormon and yet we come to the Bible over 300 prophecies that were given that are stunning it's it's, it's not a coincidence and how accurate and how real it is the word of God is so alive. But that's, that's the place of the Messiah. Let's look at the person of the Messiah most importantly. Um, look at what he says. But you, of Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth for me. He shall come forth. This is where it gets really mind-boggling. And, and you, you put your shoes into, or I should say, put your, your feet into the shoes of the, of the reader. And when reading the Bible, I think that's a great way to read it. If we could read it like we're reading it for the first time and we're the recipient of what's being given to us. So here you are in the 700s or 600s BC. You're reading it. You're a Jew and you're reading these words, shall he come forth? But wait till your mind's going to, your head's going to go crazy when we look at the words later of old and ancient of days. But we see shall come forth. So when you read that, what are you understanding? From Bethlehem Ephrathah is one that's going to come forth. Shall he come forth? It's talking about his, what? You assume it's talking about his birth, right? His beginning. So it's one that's going to come forth. So it's understood that it's going to be the Messiah, one that's going to be a deliverer. And we look in Matthew chapter 2, and it confirms the correctness of the view that the Messiah was born in Bethlehem. In fact, as we read Matthew chapter 2, and the wise men come, and they go to Herod's court, and they gather all the chief priests and the, and, the, and the religious leaders. Where is he to be born? Oh, the prophet Micah said he's to be born in Bethlehem. So we understand all of that. The Messiah is to be born. Uh, John chapter 7 gives that agreement that the, the Jews were checking Jesus out. Well, he's to be born, the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem. Um, John chapter 6 
And the word, the word Christ is called the bread of life. So we, we see all of this, that he's going to come forth like it's, like it's a beginning. But our heads spin when we, we look at the next phrase, whose going forth is from of old. Like, Micah, what in the world are you saying? And this is what's powerful. Dennis with Jehovah's Witnesses. This is what's powerful as we look at who is this person that he is going to come forth. He has a beginning, but there's something mind-boggling about him whose going forth is from of old. It's really referring to his activities, that, that he's going to have a beginning point, but that's not his beginning. His activities are from eternity. In fact, if we look at this, this word old, the Hebrew word kadem, it's the same word that's translated eternal in Deuteronomy 32. The eternal God is your dwelling place. So kick out the word old and put the word eternal in. Or if you please, in Habakkuk 1, it's the same word that's translated everlasting. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God? So here it's talking about whose own goings forth have been from eternity. He didn't have a starting point. He's the eternal one. He's going to be come forth from Bethlehem, but he's from everlasting. What in the world is being said? We understand that. And eventually many brothers and sisters that are Jews also would. But they're looking at this, this incredible truth and this viewpoint that is going forth is, is going to be from eternity. He's, he's the everlasting one. And he keeps driving home this point when he looks at the Ancient of Days who's going forth looking at ancient of days, and he parallels the same idea and phrase. He's the everlasting one. He's eternal. You know, when we think of Christ, well, is that spoken of him? Does it square with New Testament scripture? Does, does the New Testament claim what Micah 5, chapter 2, verse, verse um, 2 claims? Um, we see in John 1, 3, talking of Christ, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So we see his activities have been in eternity past prior to Micah 5, 2, prior to Bethlehem, that he created the world. Paul says that also in Colossians 1, for by him all things were created. So Christ created everything. We see that his activities were in eternity past. We also look and we see, let me back up here, one I thought I had, um, John 1, I don't. We, we'll go through the Gospel of John, we're going to see a whole lot of statements defining Christ's pre-existence. John 1 talks about that, made flesh dwelt among us. John 6, he says seven, eight times that he came down from the heavens. John 8, before Abraham was, I am, tying into Exodus 3. Um, John 10, um, my, my father and I are one. Um, we, we tie in also um, Philippians 2.6. He had the same essence from God, being made in the likeness of God. Um, he, held a not, um, he, held a, he did not consider, uh, he did not empty himself, did not, or I should say, he emptied himself, did not consider that something to be held onto, um, that external glory. Um, Hebrews 13, Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we see his activities are from eternity past. His theophanies, his appearances was a whole nother area that he made appearances to man. Um, the angel of Jehovah, we see that um, throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The person of the, the Messiah, the person of the Messiah, who is he? None other than Jesus Christ. So this one that we celebrate at Christmas, this one that we look at, this one that we sing songs about, 
the eternal one that didn't begin. We, we get that, but just like communion, it's good that we take communion on a regular basis so that our hearts stay soft to, to what God has done for us. It's good that we're reminding ourselves who is the Christ of Christmas? Who is this individual that we're celebrating? Who is this individual that we're, we're, we're singing praises to? He's the eternal one. One wrote a beautiful poem more than 2,000 years ago. There was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the border boundary of the country in which he lived. That was during exile in his childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous and had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature, walked upon the billows as if pavements, and hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, and yet perhaps all of the libraries of the world could not hold the books that had been written about him. He never wrote a song, and yet he has furnished a theme for more songs than all of the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun, yet no leader had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made rebels, stack arms, and surrender without a shot, shot fired. He has never practiced psychiatry, yet he has healed more broken hearts than all of the doctors far and near. Once each week, the wheels of commerce cease their turning, and multitudes wend their way to worshiping assemblies to pay homage and respect to him. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. The names of the past scientists, philosophers, and theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Though time has spread 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he still lives. His enemies could not destroy him and the grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed the glory and knowledge by angels, adorned by saints and feared by devils, as a risen personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. Our precious Lord and Savior. So why did he come? This is the Messiah, the person, the Messiah. But to answer the question, why did he come? Look in this passage whose going forth is from, I'm sorry, from you shall come forth for me. God is a speaker here, and specifically he's saying his going forth, his coming to earth is going to be for me. That God has a purpose that he has designed, and this one is going to carry out God's purposes. And we get that because it says in John chapter 6, or John chapter 4, Christ said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. Well, what was God's purpose? What was God's purpose in Christ's coming? We enjoy the Matthew account and the Luke account that talks about a Savior. You're going to call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And then the angels announced, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. You see, we needed help. Man, God desired a fellowship with man, made man in a perfect state, but man blew it. And they disobeyed God. But immediately on the heels of that disobedience, God made one of the most stunning prophecies. For I will set the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent. And then just verses later, 
God starts to give a picture of what he's going to do by clothing Adam and Eve in animal skin. Blood had to be shed for them to put on this animal skin. And then you march forward and Abraham traveling up with Isaac. Dad, Dad, where's, where's the lamb? God will provide for himself the sacrifice. And tying in John when Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You march forward and we have the Passover. And the instructions are given. You have to have a perfect Passover lamb and he has to be a male. Picture again, 1 Corinthians 5, 7, the Passover lamb, Christ. And the prophets continue to foretell that one would come, that he would be led as a slaughter, led as a lamb to the slaughter. He would not open his mouth. So the prophets kept giving their messages year after year, continually shouting forth the word of God. One day he's coming. Malachi declared the same thing. One day he's coming. Then all of a sudden, silence. One year spilled into two, spilled into 10, spilled into 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. No prophet is trumpeting the word of God until the but of verse chapter 2 happens. But it's silence in the Bethlehem hillside as the shepherds are watching the sheep. And all of a sudden, they didn't hear it, but a few heard it. The cry of the baby broke the silence. God spoke again. And he came. He came for a specific purpose. He came to save us from our sins. You know, as we talk about the Messiah and who he is, may we be reminded of a key phrase here as we drive home application and closing. And the phrase I see in verse 2, describing who this Messiah is, the ruler of Israel, one who is to be ruler as we ask the question, God, are you, are you ruler in my life? Christ was set up in these passages that are on the screen there. They talk about one day one that would come and he would be ruler from the line of Judah in chapter 49, verse 10, right on through Jeremiah 23, 5. Keeps talking about one that's going to come is to be ruler. But as we look in our lives, and we must ask the question, we that have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior, we that claim to be followers of Christ, we that claim to be in the family of God, is he ruling in our lives? And we need to ask that this time of the year. Do we get so tied up? Are we going to spend more money and time on buying presents and on preparing for the season than we are in worshiping him? God, are you ruling my finances? When we ask that question, will I spend more than what I'll give to God's work this month? Will I spend more in presents? God, am I more in tune and furthering just happiness among my loved ones than I am on, on your cause? Um, is he ruler of our finances? Is he ruler of our time? Now, how do we spend our time? We have this, this awesome Christmas message that Christ came because man was dead, needed a savior, they're blind spiritually, they're lost, they're not on the way of peace, but we're the light bearers. So how are we doing as we think of, of people in our neighborhood? Are we intentional in building bridges um, at work, um, chatting with someone as we're praying for them, keep building bridges and then maybe take them out for coffee or maybe have, have lunch with them, um, with our neighbors, or maybe new neighbors that have moved in, uh, neighbors that you've not talked to for years. Are we intentional in building bridges, um, getting involved in the community, different ways that we can be involved in getting to know people so that we can get out of our glass towers and 
get involved in? Are we using our time for God? Um, are we using our talents? How have we used our talents to serve God this past week? I mean, he came to be ruler, but is he ruling in my life now? How did I use my talents in serving God in this last year? You know, just coming off of a really awesome mission trip with, with Ray down in Panama, um, I would love to see each one of us be able to go to our headquarters and just meet the people and just get, a, get energized by, by what God's doing down there and how we can pray and impact and use our time and resources to serve him. But not just for the sake of missions. We would need for, for you to do something down there. We don't want you just to take pictures. But am I using my, my talents for God? Am I using what God has given me? Am I, am I retired that I could spend more time serving God? Um, and even in the busyness of life, if we're still working, how can I serve God in using? The point is, is he ruling in our lives? He's an awesome Messiah. And that's what I wanted us to see tonight. And who he is that we get a, a fresh pause, that our breath is taken away once again, that this one would be from, from eternity, that he would be the everlasting one that is so exact in where he is to be born, that God's word is so alive. God's goodness and holiness demands my submission and my obedience and my faithful, faithfulness to him. God, we love you. We thank you for, for who you are. God, we thank you for the preciousness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, may we pause often in the three weeks coming prior to Christmas and just enduring you and enjoying you and looking to see who you are and what you've done for us. God, may we not get over your sweetness and your grace to us. God, may you be ruler of our lives continually, I pray in Christ's name, amen.